This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. With me today to discuss how the U.S. healthcare industry can eliminate its carbon footprint and the considerable health harm that results is Mark Jacobson, Stanford Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering, also Director of the Atmosphere Energy Program, Senior Fellow at the Woods Institute for the Environment and the Precourt Institute for Energy, and also the co-founder of the Solutions Project. Professor Jacobson, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me on the show, David. Professor Jacobson's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. On background, as listeners are aware, 10 days ago, I posted my most recent climate crisis-related essay. In my conclusion, I cited a 2011 energy policy article published by Mark Delucci and Mark Jacobson that stated, quote-unquote, the barriers to 100% conversion to wind, water, solar worldwide are preliminarily social and political, not technological, nor even economic. Two years prior in 2009, both authors argued in a Scientific American article that nearly 100% of the world's new energy supply could be produced via wind, water, and solar within 20 to 30 years. A 2017 article published in Juul by Professor Jacobson and 27 colleagues summarized the development of what they termed roadmaps to transform energy infrastructures for 139 countries to 80% wind, water, and solar by 2030. And most recently, in a text titled 100% Clean Renewable Energy and Storage for Everything, published last year by Cambridge University Press, Professor Jacobson explains in detail how we can rapidly and entirely transition the world's current combustion-based energy to 100% clean renewables and storage. Professor Jacobson, one final note I should make is that he has presented his research, again, his roadmaps to transition energy infrastructures for these countries and 50 U.S. states to the House Energy and Commerce Committee in 2015. So with me again to discuss the U.S. Healthcare, how the U.S. healthcare industry can eliminate or at least make substantial progress in reducing its annual 700 million metric tons of CO2 equivalent emissions is Professor Mark Jacobson. So with that as background, uh, Professor Jacobson, let me run through some uh, preliminary questions on background or to set some context. And my first question, therefore, is, is there enough or sufficient wind, water, and solar energy or enough of these energy sources to power uh, the globe's uh, energy or provide the globe's energy needs? Um, yes. In fact, we've analyzed whether we can power the entire world with just clean renewable energy, namely wind, water, and solar power. That includes onshore and offshore winds, solar photovoltaics on rooftops and in power plants, concentrated solar power, uh, geothermal power, and hydroelectric power primarily. And we find that, well, there's there's like over 30 times more solar energy available than you need to power the entire world for all purposes. There's about eight times more wind energy than you need for all purposes. And we don't need each one of those for all purposes. Uh, we'll probably need, you know, probably about 55% wind solar and maybe 40, 45% wind and the rest uh, will be mostly existing hydroelectric power and some 
small amounts of geothermal and also tidal wave power. So we find that we we not have not, not only enough resource, but it would not take up a huge amount of space worldwide. It would take up about well less than one percent, about 065 percent of the world's land area for installing enough solar and wind on land, and we'll also have wind offshore as well, and rooftop photovoltaics, which don't count as new land. So there's plenty of land area. It would actually take up less land than the fossil fuel industry requires. In the U.S. today, 1.3% of all the land area is used by the fossil fuel industry. We'd use around 0.8% in the U.S. for transitioning to clean, renewable energy. But I should say the biggest benefits of transitioning, aside from eliminating air pollution related to energy, which kills up to 7 million people per year worldwide, and eliminating the emissions associated with global warming that's allowing the eventual return of our climate to normal, uh, we reduce energy consumption quite a bit by a transition, and we reduce costs and we create jobs. So that's the, the idea is to electrify all energy and electrification of all energy and providing that electricity with clean renewable sort from clean renewable sources, it reduces worldwide power demand about fifty seven percent. That's and because it's more efficient. Uh, yes. Go go yeah, explain that. That's helpful. Yeah, and there are actually five reasons for that. Uh, one is because we instead of using gas heaters and even electric resistance heaters, we'll use a lot of heat pumps. Heat pumps move heat rather than create it. And when you move heat, instead of creating it, you actually reduce your energy requirements by a factor of anywhere from three to five. And so that's effectively an average of 75% reduction of power demand just in the building heating sector alone uh, if we transition to clean, renewable electricity and appliances. Uh, vehicles are similar. With an electric vehicle, that uses about one-fourth the energy as a gasoline or diesel vehicle. And so that saves a huge amount of energy. Uh, electrifying industry saves a smaller amount. Uh, and also, we eliminate all the energy needed to mine, transport, and refine fossil fuels and uranium. And that's about 12% of all energy worldwide. And then we can get end-use energy efficiency improvements beyond business as usual. When we add all these improvements up, they're about 57% reduction of, of power requirements without even changing our habits and providing the electricity clean renewable, clean renewable sources. So because even if the cost per unit energy were the same with these two systems, we'd be spending annually 57% less money on energy because we're using that much less. But in fact, wind and solar, for example, are the cheapest forms of new electricity worldwide. And in the U.S., they're half the cost of new natural gas. And so we anticipate they'll that even when you account for the storage we need, we'll still have lower overall cost per unit energy. So when we combine the lower cost per unit energy with the lower energy use in the new system, we're talking about an over 60% reduction in annual costs for energy. And that's just the energy cost. And we're also saving huge costs from health problems associated with energy and climate problems. Uh, so the, the sum of energy plus health plus climate costs are referred to as the social costs. Those go down 90%. The energy costs themselves go down about 60%. So just to give you a summary of the actual cost to the, let's say, to the U.S. and the world, 
to transition the entire United States to clean renewable energy for all purposes, eliminating all air pollution, which in the U.S. kills about 78,000 people per year, that costs about $7.8 trillion, so almost $8 trillion. Sounds like a lot, but we spent $2 trillion on the first COVID relief, and so that's one quarter of the cost to transition the entire United States to create renewable energy for all purposes. And uh, President Biden has uh, promised to spend on the order of $4 trillion during his term uh, towards this effort of going to clean renewable energy. So that would be half of what we need to actually transition the entire U.S. Worldwide, it's about $73 trillion. So these are the costs of the Green New Deal. In fact, the Green New Deal is really a proposal uh, to transition uh, the first the United States to entirely clean renewable energy by 2030. Now, we don't think we're going to get there by 2030, but we could get there theoretically uh, with sufficient willpower. We could certainly transition the power, electric power sector, but all energy sectors we're hoping to get there somewhere between 2030 and 2040, uh, and certainly no later than 2050. So, in, anyway, there's a, not only this uh, cost benefit and you know, reasonably low capital cost of transitioning, uh, and, and this social cost benefit, we also create jobs. Uh, in the U.S., we calculate 3 million more long-term full-time jobs lost uh, from such a transition, and worldwide around 28 million more long-term full-time jobs than lost. So jobs benefit, cost benefits, uh, air pollution health benefit, which really reduces health care needs. Uh, so that's, that is important because, I mean, not only do we have in the U.S. 78,000 deaths per year, uh, from air pollution, which are triggered from uh, cardiovascular disease, respiratory illness, complications from asthma uh, and stroke, uh, where air pollution is a confounding factor, uh, but also the illnesses, morbidities, right. uh, those number in the millions as well. Right, yes. Uh, so you covered quite a bit there, so thank you. I'll, I'll just throw in a, a few others to complete this. Uh, you did mention jobs, uh, minimal land uh, use, but I did find interesting as well, and this, these additional points I think get underappreciated. You note that uh, the conversion allows countries to produce as much energy as they consume and increases access to energy for up to 4 billion people currently living in energy poverty. And importantly, too, as well, decentralizes the world's power supply, reducing large-scale disruptions and international conflict. And of course, of course, as you noted, possibly more than everything combined, it avoids a global temperature rise or certainly uh, temperatures rising beyond 1.5 centigrade, which is considered to be an important um, a cut point, uh, at least as it relates to beyond uh, effects, uh, tipping points. Uh, let's. You did mention uh, cost, but this is usually discussed in terms of kilowatt hour prices uh, as measured in cents. Um, and in fact, you do provide some of that data, I believe, in Chapter 7. So let's talk about head-to-head uh, -head comparison, wind, solar, kilowatt-hour pricing compared to fossil fuels. Right. So, yeah, if you look at um, Lazard 2020, Lazard is a cost of energy in the U.S. So they're kind of very consistent in how they do calculations. Uh, Utility-scale solar, specifically thin-film solar, uh, and onshore wind are the cheapest forms of land. Now, there, you know, there's a range, but the mean is around three cents a kilowatt hour, which is uh, amazing. 
you know, used to be three, four, five times that. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, nuclear nuclear is now kilowatt hour, so it's on the order of, <laughs> so it's on the order of five times the cost of new solar onshore wind. Natural gas is somewhere in between, so like closer to six kilowatt hour. And so we're, you can see that, that wind and solar are beating everybody out. And that's why last year, in 2020, it was, I think, uh, it was at least 70%, I forget if it was 70 or 80%, but it, let's say 70% of all electricity in the U.S. was wind and solar, and a tiny bit of hydro as well. Uh, and that's because the cost is so low. It's just everywhere and worldwide. Mm-hmm. So this is even during COVID, even um, oil and gas down, coal went. Just a couple of years ago, two years ago, it was like 45% or so of U.S. electricity production was uh, coal. Now it's like less than 20%. It's on the order of, I think, 17 or 18%. All right, so Mark, Mark, you're breaking up a little bit. We did, I did get most of that, so thank you for that. Let, let's go to... Uh, what I really want to discuss, and as I suggest in the introduction, this is, of course, a healthcare policy podcast. So let's get into uh, 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 policy development here or how to move uh, renewable energy on the policy front. And so I'm going to pose this question in this uh, more, say, practical uh, matter or uh, way. And that is let's just pretend or assume. Uh, that I work for the, the chairwoman of the Senate Health Committee. The Health Committee, of course, is the Senate Public Health Committee. And we're aware, we've read your book, and we send you a letter and we note um, uh, and we applaud your effort relative to your citing uh, related federal legislation. Uh, you're identifying uh, states, cities, companies, and NGOs that have committed to 100% renewables. You cite favorable polling data. Uh, and you note the necessity of reducing carbon emissions by 5.3%, as you note, per year over the next 15 years to limit warming to this cut point, again, of 1.5 degrees centigrade, um, which is um, about 2.7 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. So in our letter, we write to you on on behalf of the chairwoman. We thank you. Um, however, we ask you... Um, in our letter, we say, uh, knowing this, we write further that the Congress can no longer accept or allow the healthcare industry to contribute to health harms suffered by the government's 140 million Medicare and Medicaid beneficiaries via the healthcare industry's own carbon emissions, which we know are substantial at 10% of the national total. Therefore, in our letter to you, we ask you to provide the committee with a roadmap since you discuss uh, moving to 100% renewables via these roadmaps. So we ask if you would provide us with a roadmap to convert the U.S. healthcare industry to 100% use of renewable energy resources within the next decade. So that's our question to you. Um, you're asked to respond to a germane committee uh, in the Congress. And so the question is, how would you approach preparing uh, this response, or how would you approach preparing a roadmap for the U.S. healthcare industry uh, to move in fairly short order to uh, eliminating or substantially reducing its carbon footprint? Well, I think most of the energy used by the healthcare industry banks, and there's also some in transportation, uh, but the buildings part and in the buildings, and there's use and there's gas use. 
uh, for heating. And then there's also backup generators like diesel generators. Really, you go through every source in a building to transition. And I did this with my own home. I built a new home from scratch. And I decided I'm not going to have any gas on the property. I'm just going to make it electric and have battery storage, have solar photovoltaics on the roof, uh, have electric appliances, have very efficient appliances like heat pumps. I mentioned they use one-fourth the energy as a gas heater. And uh, heat pumps with air and air conditioning, uh, LED lights. So you just go through all the, if there's any heating that's gas heating, you change that to electric heat pump heating. And same with water heating, electric heat pumps, uh, old, old light bulbs should be changed to LED lights. Uh, buildings should be weatherized. I mean, part of the problem in Texas, unless you're probably familiar with that Texas heat storm, and then they have most of the power goes up, and a lot of because of freezing. Well, it turns out that you know every person in Texas uses about two and a quarter times the electricity in, in the annual average as a person in California. And that's because buildings are very inefficient. Appliances are not efficient, so going through and making appliances and buildings more efficient, weatherizing them, that goes a long way to reducing energy requirements And in addition to electrifying everything. Now, for backup diesel, let's say the power goes out in the hospital, diesel generators, but there are equivalent battery storage options now that you can that last uh, several days. And uh, there's also heat storage. There's... You can also store heat in ice uh, or cold for ice when you need refrigeration. I mean, my university, Stanford, since 1998, had a big ice cube under a building. So when the electricity price, there'd be at night, there'd be used, or the electricity would be used to produce ice. And then during the day, instead of using air conditioning, uh, water went through the coils in the ice and kept the buildings to cool the buildings. So you can avoid, let's say it's a hot summer day and the power goes out. You know, having an ice storage that helps the hospital too. And in fact, the hospitals do have ice storage from the university. Yeah. Uh, so this is, you know, you can also do uh, seasonal heat storage underground and up to six months of heat storage. You need that. There's electricity storage in batteries, but also in what's called gravitational storage, where this is a newer, te- newer technology where when you have extra electricity, you use it to uh, lift a concrete block, and then when you need electricity, you lower the block. So it's very inexpensive. Very expensive. Uh, there's also flywheels. There's compressed air energy storage. So there's also pumped hydroelectric storage. So there's several types of electricity storage options. Uh, so, and then in transportation, as many to as many electric vehicles. Like ambulances can be electric, um, and other types of types of metal. Uh, even helicopters are starting to go electric. So this is the key: is electrification of everything, and providing electricity with clean renewable energy. And to the extent hospitals can buy their own solar uh, solar farms, wind farms, and cover their buildings with solar. Renewables, including eight of the ten biggest, and they're actually walking the walk. They're buying wind and driving this right now, and hospitals can contribute to that as well. Medical offices and also medical companies as well. Let me let me ask you about uh, financing. This is you know so so your answer largely just addressed the technology. I mean there are ample technologies. 
uh, from which to choose for uh, for both um, supplying electric and then reducing uh, consumption relative to more efficient um, uh, weather weatherization, etc., more efficient appliances, lighting, etc., uh, uh, better ways to heat and cool buildings, HVAC, uh, generally, etc. Uh, let me ask you, though, relative to the, the financing thereof, um, you do know, for example, Kaiser Permanente in California was certified last September as carbon neutral, uh, scope one through three. Um, in part, they did this, uh, they did buy um, and, or invest in uh, solar farms and wind farms, and they did issue some financing uh, bonds to afford this. But what's, what's, your, what's your sense of the financing required uh, for uh, hospitals, for example, larger hospitals, because they have the biggest, obviously, carbon footprint, they're the largest consumers, for hospitals to do this? Yeah, so for anybody, it's going to be you know upfront cost will be an important issue, and that's you know some of these changes can be implemented gradually over time. Obviously, we want to do it as fast as possible, but it's not you don't have to invest everything in year one. But let's say you're doing it over five years to ten years, mm-hmm. that's where you'd spread the investment. I mean, I found when I did my own house, you know, the additional costs beyond what I would have paid for anyway were for the solar on the roof, for the batteries in the garage. Uh, but everything else is a trade-off because, like, instead of, uh, you know, I got heat pumps, but I did not get gas heaters, for example. And I actually, I saved money not putting gas on the property because I didn't have to pay a hookup fee just because PG&E, my local utility, uh, was charging a gas hookup fee just to hook gas up to the pump, not have to pay for gas pipes. So there are a lot of things that you don't have to pay for. When you put solar on your roof, you don't have to pay for a certain roofing. So you save money in terms of what you don't have to pay for. There are also lots of tax incentives at the federal level and also many incentives as well. So in my case, going, I have not paid an electric bill, a natural gas bill, or a gasoline bill because I also have electric cars in four years now. And... I also get paid for it. I carry more electricity than I consume, and I sell that back to my community choice aggregation utility. And when you account for that, the fact that I don't pay any bills, the fact that I save money up front, and the tax incentives, the payback time was about five years with subsidy. Without subsidy, it's about 10 years, but the equipment's warranty, like the solar is all warranty for 25. It's a greater, um, it saves money over a short time, sure, there is a financing, upfront financing issue. Uh, now, that could be addressed through loans or, uh, again, spreading out the cost over a few years can help. I don't want to say that's it's trivial, but the thing is, it's such a good payback and a fast payback time that it's definitely worth it because it's just so much cheaper uh, because you're just not, you don't have these huge annual energy costs that you do now. Um, it's big, yeah, I mean, you... Right now, energy costs because you're, when you're paying for fossil fuels and combustion, uh, you're paying. Mm-hmm. So, well, one way I thought of approaching uh, asking this question, and, and an alternative way actually to ask the question, was obviously you work at a very large institution, um, Stanford University. Um, I'm sure they consume a massive amount of of power. What learning can uh, can you provide us from what Stanford or university is doing? 
uh, to address this issue because, you know, they're a large campus, uh, much like, um, say, for example, on the East Coast, uh, Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. I'm sure the footprint is may not be as large as Stanford's, but it's it's substantial. It's several, if not many, square blocks, numerous buildings. So analogous. So what what lessons can we learn from, or are there lessons we can learn from, how Stanford University has addressed this? Yeah. So Stanford is actually the first university in the world to be 100% renewable, not only for electricity but also heating and cooling. Uh, what it did was. In 2016, until 2016, there was a natural gas cogeneration plant on the campus, ironically right outside my building, that powered 80% of the electricity and the heat from the campus. That was bulldozed in 2016. It was replaced with this new fourth-generation district heating system and cooling system, which is basically two chillers and a boiler, these big water tanks for cold water or hot water, and an elaborate piping system around the university. So at any given time of the year, there's some buildings need hot water or hot air and others need cold. And so that this elaborate piping system allowed the distribution of hot and cold. And when you produce waste, when you produce heat, you have waste cold. When you produce cold, you have waste heat. So instead of letting that waste go to the air, it was recaptured and sent to these water tanks for reuse. So there's a lot of reuse of energy. And in order to uh, heat the water even more, more they had heat pumps electric heat pumps and so and also for cooling they had electric heat pumps for the cooling for the chiller and the boiler and where did they get the electricity where well they had 10 megawatts of solar on the rooftops but they also bought 110 additional megawatts uh, of two pv farms photovoltaic farms or in california and so with that with the heating system the cooling system and all the electricity that they bought they're now 100% renewable for uh, for not only electricity, but also heat and cold. Now, they're not 100% greenhouse gas free. They're about, let's say, 85% greenhouse gas free because they're still, and they've also electrified a lot of the transportation, but there's still some of the transportation that hasn't been electrified. And they still have some diesel generators, especially near the hospitals, I think. So those, have, those are the next step to replace, uh, especially in replacing them with renewables plus batteries primarily. Uh, but other of uh, the electricity storage options I mentioned as well. Okay, thank you. Let me let me ask one uh, specific question. We didn't uh, get to this when we went through um, some of the preliminary uh, aspects of this, and that is relative to what the Texas governor said. Um, there, there's the criticism has been made uh, relative to uh, renewable sources that. Uh, they present reliability or, or intermittency issues or problems. Um, and this gets at, of course, the state of the science relative or technology relative storage batteries in part. But how do you address this issue or concern relative to reliability and intermittency issues? Yeah, well, first of all, energy sources are intermittent. For example, even nuclear power, which provides constant power during most of the time, it is intermittent relative to demand. Demand for energy varies continuously. So the key is to match demand with supply, not to be a constant source of supply. So nuclear, for example, is intermittent relative to the demand for energy. So it requires backup. It requires peaking power to meet the peaks in actual demand. Plus, a nuclear power plant is down 10 to 15% of the year uh, in, in the United States. 
And so that has this huge amount of power for a while, then it goes to zero, and you need something else to back up then. So you know, wind and solar are what we call variable variable renewables because they're, you know, their uh, production varies during the day and between seasons. But it turns out that uh, they become less variable when you aggregate wind and solar over larger geographic regions. And when you combine the generation and aggregation with storage, like battery storage or heat storage or cold storage, after you electrify everything, and you use what's called demand response, where utilities give people incentives not to use electricity at certain times of the day, it turns out you can match power demand with supply exactly uh, up to the you know up to the second uh, everywhere in the world. In fact, that's what we found. We've done studies in 143 countries trying to match demand with supply and storage and demand response, and we found we can do it every 30 seconds for three years everywhere in the world. So it's really an optimization problem. Uh, nobody's looking at just wind. So when you say, say when people say, "Well, wind is intermittent, it right. doesn't match the demand," that's true. Nobody's setting a, making an electricity grid just based on wind. So it's wind plus solar plus geothermal plus hydro. Hydroelectric power, for example, is like a perfect battery. I mean, you can turn it on and off and use it to fill in gaps. And there are many states, like Washington State. I mean, over sixty percent of its electricity is hydro, and Vermont. In fact, over 80% of its electricity is hydro because it imports it from Canada. So there are you know, states where they use hydro as backup. California uses it as backup. So using it, but there are states that don't use hydro as backup. They just use it as baseload. So if you use hydro as backup, uh, you can combine it with wind and solar and that demand a lot easier. You can use pump hydro, batteries, uh, and other types of storage. And then when you combine that with heat storage, cold storage, and hydrogen storage for some applications, uh, you can solve the problem and demand response. So it's it's an optimization problem. It's not that difficult once you understand all the options you have and uh, take, in, take those into account. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate your point. When you factor, you know, the criticism, the, the wind will stop blowing at certain points. But if you, if you connect... Uh, wind turbines in a region, you're more likely to have a more consistent energy uh, production. My, we do have time for one last question. And you you have discussed uh, the complementary need for uh, related policy mechanisms. And here I'm talking specifically about, um, and let's just, let's just uh, note, obviously, fossil fuels are still being subsidized. So that obviously is an issue or a problem. But related, you do talk about um, a revenue neutral or a carbon tax. It may be revenue neutral. Uh, there are other ways, uh, variations on a theme, cap and trade. Uh, and then, of course, mandatory emission limits. Uh, do you think these are still, these tools or this suite of tools are still necessary? Well, I think the best policy is a renewable portfolio standard. That's what's working. 61 countries who have laws to go to 100% renewables in their electric power sector. Uh, in the U.S., there are 14 states and territories that have laws or executive orders to do this. There are almost 180 cities in the U.S. that have laws or rules to go to 100% renewables. That's what works and what galvanizes people. I mean, having a goal of 100% renewable energy is a positive goal, whereas the carbon tax or even um, you know no fossil fuels is, is some people perceive that as a negative goal. You know, you can accomplish no fossil fuels by going to 100% renewables, and but without 
you know, making people upset about it. Uh, but that's what's working. That's the kind of, those are the kinds of laws put in place and effective portfolio standards to ramp up uh, electricity from renewables by certain years. You can apply that to the transportation, to the and also to uh, industry to have transition by certain years. I think it works. That's what galvanizes people. And I think that's what we should focus on. There are lots of other mechanisms that are proposed and some have worked under certain applications with the right political will. Uh, but I think, you know, enough, uh, some people get turned off by, you know, anything that has the word tax in it, for example, so right. carbon tax is not really appealing to a lot of effective. But, you know, and also carbon taxes, I don't think aren't quite so effective as a renewable portfolio center because, you know, a fossil fuel company can pay the tax and still pollute. So it doesn't necessarily solve the problem. Uh, or they can claim that they're reducing carbon with something like carbon capture, even though that inc- carbon capture increases air pollution because it needs energy and it doesn't reduce carbon capture, doesn't reduce any air pollutants. It only reduces carbon dioxide. Right. And, uh, but it requires energy. So that, you know, there was a fossil fuel plant in Texas, a, car, a coal plant, where they put carbon capture on it. But to run the carbon capture, they actually built a natural gas plant <laughs> to provide the electricity. So they had more mining of gas. They had burning of gas. All that led to more emissions of, of pollution and offset their carbon savings. And so they increased pollution. They hardly reduced any carbon. And then what did they do with the carbon dioxide? They piped it to a nearby oil field to bind with oil to the get more oil and half the fuel was lost back to the area from that process and who knows what happened to the other and then they generated more oil to burn and that created more pollution and more CO2 so the whole thing was a boondoggle and they actually shuttered the plant last year because there was a financial failure as well so this is this is our carbon captain why we should focus on just clean renewable sources not on these uh, gimmicks like carbon capture new nuclear power um, you know, biofuels is another problem where you just increase air pollution. Uh, and yeah, so we just focus on what we know works, which is clean, renewable energy and storage. Right. I think these others become a distraction, um, false hope. So uh, with that, uh, Mark, uh, we're at our time. I appreciate this overview. Uh, very helpful. Uh, I'll make note when I post this of several of your writings that are online. Uh, as well as as your book, and I wish you every success with it and continued success with your ongoing research. So thank you again. Thank you so much for having me on, David. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.